Thousands of career and political federal employees own stock in companies their agencies regulate. That's according to a recent analysis by the Wall Street Journal. If so, it's largely in violation of federal ethics rules. For what they found and how they found it, Journal senior reporter James Grimaldi. James, good to have you with us. Thanks for inviting me. Let's begin with the top-line findings. Thousands of people, and many of them in the career ranks, correct? Yes, that's right. We're talking about the senior executive service as well as appointees and those who have to file a public financial disclosure form. We went and got them. And we found more than 200 senior officials at at an agency, for example, like the EPA, nearly one in three reported that they or their family members had investments in companies that were lobbying the agency. You know, as you pointed out on our main findings, we found one in five were uh, owning stocks in companies that were being regulated by those agencies. But we did a, a deeper analysis. There's a lot more than just that. But it was really a surprise even to us to find so many federal officials actually investing in companies that they oversee or they regulate. Yes, so it could be the form of direct regulation of that company, or it could simply be decision-making of the agency that could materially affect a company. That's right, yes. For example, an energy company would be regulated by the EPA or probably involved in lobbying the EPA, and there would be 200, as we said, senior EPA officials who, who were owning it. It was harder for us to find, and although we did find some cases where they actually, you know, were involved in decision making <laughs> regarding particular companies that that they own stock in, but we knew that they were there. And the idea that these numbers are so high, I mean, to be sure, there were people who went out of their way to sort of make sure they weren't doing anything like that. But others were just like, well, I could do this and I'm going to do it. And you also checked in with the Office of Government Ethics and determined that, yes, in fact, these were violations of both statutes and regulations regarding federal employee behavior. It's up to OGE or the ethics officers to take a look at it. But we had people who were clearly owning stock in companies that they weren't supposed to. For example, we had an official at the Food and Drug Administration. FDA actually has a really rigorous program that's a little bit even more restrictive than other federal workers uh, in which they post monthly all of the companies that are significantly regulated by the FDA, which are off limits for everyone at the FDA. And we had official who had 70 of these companies and had transactions 170 times involving those 70 companies. And that official was appointed or career? That was a career official, had been working there for 18 years, the head of the Office of Planning. I suppose you could say somewhat distant maybe from actual regulation or rulemaking, but the FDA had passed this rule. It was in the CFR, the Code of Federal Regulations, had passed this rule for the very purpose of avoiding even the appearance of a conflict of interest, because you need to remember that not only you're supposed to avoid a conflict of interest, but you're supposed to avoid the appearance of a conflict of interest, because an appearance of a conflict of interest will cause problems with the public who begin to doubt you know, whether or not they're having a government that's either acting at the best interest of the public rather than the best interest of their stock portfolio. Sure. And I know you have a long history in looking at these things in your reporting history. And could it also be that they would have insider trading violations, possibly, in addition to the ethics question? There is certainly a possibility of that. A definition of insider trading is having material non-public information that you are then investing on. And of course, Proving that is really difficult. You have to get into the state of mind. Uh, These trades were made for this reason. 
a lot of the responses we got from officials like, oh, well, that was my, uh, you know, that was my uh, trader, you know, my financial advisor or my spouse. But the rules cover them, right? Even if you're saying it's your financial advisor, you know, right, that you were the one who owns this stock and is benefiting from it. We don't know what conversations you have with your financial advisor. Just saying that it was done by a third party advisor does not let you off the hook. Sure. We're speaking with James Grimaldi. He's senior reporter for The Wall Street Journal. And just briefly tell us the methodology by which you obtain this information. There is a Form 270A that uh, senior executive officials at the federal government have to file. Everyone files a financial disclosure and those who are, it's generally GS, your audience will know this, GS 15 or above. Sure. As well as uh, po- political appointees and and even those that are Senate confirmed. To get the forms, you file what's called a Form 201 in which you, you fill it out and say who you are and Wall Street Journal or the media or whatever and you want to look at it. Uh, we had some resistance Uh, They said you need to fill out a form to get all of these forms. And we said for each individual and you have to give us you have to put the names in there. And we said, okay, can you give us the names of the people who have to fill out the 278s? And they would say no. So then we had to file a FOIA to get the names of the people who file the 278s in order to put them in the form 201 in order to get them. So not everyone did that. A lot of agencies just sent them all over. So we ended up getting 31,000 forms. For 12,000 senior officials that included 850,000 assets and 315,000 trades. It was a big bunch of (laughs) documents involving 50 of the top federal agencies. And so we needed data people. We brought in some big data people. The forms, you know, originally I was doing an investigative story on judges and their financial holdings, which sort of inspired this reporting. And Rebecca Ballhouse and Brody Mullins were doing all the work to get these forms. We then brought in John West and Chad Day, some data gurus who were able to put it into a big database. They scanned it, the PDFs, and put them into a sortable, searchable, and cleaned up the data. We all went through trying to you know, match stock tickers to stock holdings and created this massive database. And then they created a lookup tool so that we could sort it, like who had the biggest investments, who had the most trades. And then they, they thought, well, that's not enough. <laughs> These guys are so good. They actually went into the lobby records, right? So they brought in all the lobbying records so that they could see the companies that were actually lobbying the agencies at the time and match the holdings to the agencies that uh, the, the companies that were lobbying the agencies. And then they tried to get as many of the decisions that they could find because we had some findings. I think it was six dozen or more, about 70 federal officials or so who were actually trading within the time of a major decision. And so those included announcements or regulatory actions or sanctions against a company or fines and that sort of thing. Right. So there was real benefit from to some people in some cases then from what they knew and the trades they made. Right. And looking at the coincidence of that. I mean, I have to say a lot of these decisions, honestly, did not really move the stock. You know, even even a $10 million fine would be, you know, a rounding error for a company like ExxonMobil, proving that they were trading on insider information. That's an example of how that would be difficult because, I don't know, the way stock moves, if you've seen insider trading cases, I mean, you really have to have emails where people said, hey, I know this decision's coming and I'm going to make the trade on it. And that's almost impossible for us to get, you know, because 
that would be probably between the, the you know, executive and, and his trader or her financial advisor. Got it. And you also had a time component to this. And it turns out that it happened under both Democratic and Republican administrations. Yes, we looked at five years, the most recent five years. And so it would touch a little bit of Obama, all of Trump and a little bit of Biden. And it did go across all administrations, given the data set we had. The biggest chunk was from Trump, simply because we did five years. But, you know, as far as we could tell, there it didn't seem to be any rhyme or reason. And a lot of these appointees, we don't even know, you know, their senior executive service, someone, like I said, they could be a career official who moves up into the GS-15 or above. You know, we don't even know their party. I mean, they could be either any party or no party. What's the reaction been so far? This has been out now about two weeks. Well, we've had a lot of media reaction. We've had a lot of comments on there. We haven't had a lot of reaction that we know of from either IGs, inspectors general, or the Congress, but Congress is a little preoccupied right now, as you know. They got an election coming up, and I think that has muted a little bit what's going on. I would be surprised if there isn't some hearings, either the committees of jurisdiction or the, I guess this would fall in like in the House Homeland Security Committee and Government Affairs as well in, in the Senate. But then we were looking at specific agencies, the the committees that regulate those may want to look into them because they may have had some questions about why they're making certain decisions. I would be surprised if there isn't a hearing. And as you may know, there's in this current Congress, which ends turn of the calendar, there are at least a dozen bills that are proposing that government officials and others be limited to only owning mutual funds or widely held, broad exchange-traded funds. Those those are a little controversial. There was a bill that, that Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren brought forward that did not go through the committee process. And so the Republicans were not happy about that because they like the committee process. You know, you get everyone gets to, to weigh in on it. Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi, endorsed it publicly, but then Steny Hoyer said that there were problems with it. So I think, you know, because it would have covered Congress as well as judges, as well as government officials. So we'll we'll see what happens with that. There's a lot of the devil's always in the details. Sure. When we get to these things. There was a lot of objections from the good government groups, including conservative taxpayer groups to the project on government oversight who didn't like this idea of a blind trust because they say there's really no such thing as a blind trust and the way those get set up are problematic. So I suspect there will probably be some reforms, but it's hard to predict that what will happen. And I certainly don't endorse one or another over any. I leave that to the policymakers. Well, as they say, there's no straight roads in Washington to anything. So (laughs) we'll see what happens. James Grimaldi is a senior reporter for The Wall Street Journal and a two-time winner of the Pulitzer Prize. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his story at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology 
at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances 
um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So 
So helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in in federal service? And she said, "Uh, isn't that for old people? (laughs) I said, "Uh, (laughs) um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.